All right, so tonight we're going to be on uh, us, really what we call this is the doctrine of man. How, what do we believe about humans? Us. What, what would the Bible, if we were to summarize what the Bible says about us, what would we believe? And So let me take a moment and pray, and then we'll jump into the handout in these few moments together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together tonight. Lord, we thank you for these moments of study. Lord, we pray that this would be uh, somewhat of a self-reflection on what you have to say about us as people. And so, Lord, we pray these, these few moments uh, would be uh, encouraging. We, we would grow in our knowledge of you and ourselves. And that, God, you would use this to be instrumental in our walk with you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're going to, the doctrine of man is, is somewhat divided up into two portions. This week we'll talk about humans and human nature. Uh, and then next week, there's only one word that titles the whole week next week. In the word sin. That's it. So all we're talking about is sin next week. Uh, so I was working through these weeks. There's several weeks that I, w- I was going to be doing these. So I was asking John Stegmerton which week he wanted, and he picked the week sin. Uh, you, can, you can make your own assumptions about John if he picks the sin week. Uh, but John will be sharing next week with you. All right, so let's walk through some summary statements. I'll take you through the Bible on these. And in particular, we're going to find this doctrine... You know, a lot of the cultural wars that we're facing, this doctrine will be under attack in a lot of different ways. So what we're talking about tonight actually has great implications on the culture at large. So uh, maybe not in here, I may not say controversial things to us, but when it comes to the, the overall culture, some of the things we'll say tonight, will be absolutely contrary to the way things are going. So um, let's begin with the first piece here. So like I said, there's two chapters. We'll begin with the human beings in the image of God. Here's the statement. Uh, God created human beings in his image, making them of all created things the most like him and endowing them with dignity and significance. So, so this image of God, or is sometimes it's called the Imago Dei, as we refer to the image of God, this is the primary characteristic of who you and I are. This is who we are. So, we are male, female, we're, we're older, younger. There's just all kinds of different things that make up who we are and our identity. There is one overarching thing that, that makes your identity. It is the fact you are made in the image of God. That overrides everything else that characterizes who you are. So the foundational characteristic of your identity as a human being is the fact that you are made in the image of of God. And this is something that um, should really be something wonderful and marvelous for us to think about. There's something really amazing about mankind. 
I mean, when we think about the complexities of the brain and the body and even down beyond just the fact we can, the things we can think of, but the relationships we have and just all the complexities of humans, it's, it's amazing. I mean, as far as technology has come, how much it still pales in comparison to just even what, what you might find in your eye. The ability to see and discern light and the ability to handle different, I mean, just so much of the human body is something to be marveled at. And so, we are distinctly different than those that aren't made in the image of God. And so, the image of God, as we get to this in a moment, I'll, I'll drive towards this, is actually going to speak to the gospel. Because as we are made in the image, we'll get to this next week, but sin, we would say, mars the image of God. It distorts the image of God. So, so just to, to press on this before I get to the biblical part, is that you, even though sin has entered the picture, you still bear the image of God. It is just distorted now. It's not quite as clear as it was. And so let's look at some biblical passages on this uh, key text. So I'll give you the kind of the, the Bible verse. Many of you, if you know your Bible, this will be pretty obvious, uh, but, but it's Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28. I mean, this really holds the, the foundation for the doctrine. Then I'll give you a couple other verses that speak to it. But let me just break down. If you've if you got your Bibles, this is probably worth turning to for a minute because I'm actually going to look at this text and speak about some parts of it. Oh, yeah, I forgot to mention... Somehow this week, I guess in the time change, they took the clock down. So good luck tonight to y'all. We'll see. <laughs> one, of the, one of the guys in the back told me he'd wave his hands when it was time, and I told him I didn't trust them. They were probably going to do that about 7 o'clock. So we'll see. All right, so Genesis chapter 1, looking in verse uh, 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man, and here it is, in our image after our likeness. This isn't said about any other animal or any other creation, it's about us. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So there's, there's his statement there. Verse 27 is the, is, is the you know, he says, let us, kind of almost speaking, what will happen, verse 27, is the action of it happening. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. As if you didn't get it the first time, here's more. Male and female, he created them. So both the male and the female bear the image of God. Verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, part of this image bearing are, are these the things we're commanded to do. Here's what we're supposed to do. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, so this, this statement right here, for a Christian and for us that hold the Bible, this becomes foundational to speak about who we are. 
So this, this moment here will define us against the culture about how we see ourselves different than a lot of things. Um, so there's a couple mandates here. If you look at verse 28, there's really two things that we're called to do. Well, the first one is be fruitful and multiply. So there's like a procreation mandate. Fill the earth. So, so really this, this idea, have more of us. And then this, the second one here is, is one that is a piece of our imaging of God. It is subduing it and have dominion over it. So another thing we're called to do is to, to, to rule over the earth. We're, we're not the same as the rest of the animals. We don't submit to them. We're not equal to them. We rule over creation. So what does it mean to, to bear the image of God? Now there was... I, you want to read the book you can read a little more detail i didn't particularly find it uh was going to be that helpful for us other than the fact is to say all of who we are is bearing the image of god the book we call it a holistic view would be the term we'd use so when we have relationships when it describes male and female the fact we have relationship with each other is bearing the image of god who within the Trinity, God has relationships with himself. When it says, let us make man, there's an us there, in relationship, now it comes down to us, we're bearing the image of God when we have relationships. Uh, another way uh, that we bear the image of God is we have purposeful activity. Uh, this is the idea of domain. So in other words, uh, when God has domain over the earth, we bear that image out when we have domain below him. So we, we in essence, are imaging him as we provide authority on the earth. Imaging is reflecting something. So, so whenever you think of like a mirror, it reflects an image. So we are reflecting part of who God is. Is, so when we have knowledge, we reflect the knowledge of God. When we have power, we reflect the power of God. Whenever we have goodness, it's reflecting the goodness of God. Whenever we're faithful, it reflects the faithfulness of God. Whenever we're truthful, it's reflecting the truthfulness of God. So whenever we have any sort of great and godly attribute, when I mean godly, it is reflecting God. In a sense, our lives are meant to reflect who God is. This is why, like, I'll draw this point. It doesn't really, it kind of jumps down the road, but we'll come back to it. Probably talk about it a couple more times. Is that my, my imaging of the glory of God, my job is to, to give glory to God by imaging and reflecting who he is. So when I sin, it's when I fail to do the things that reflect the glory of God. So that's why we have Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So sin removes my inability to image the glory of God. Or removes my ability to do that. So, so that's what we're speaking about here. Is that At the very core of the gospel is that I was made in the image of God. You were made in the image of God. Sin now has distorted that imaging of God. And now you fall short of that glory of God. That's why sin isn't just like doing a few bad things. I mean, it is at the core of your being now has 
distorted what God made you to be. It is a deep, deep cancer. Let's give a, there's two supporting verses I'll give you tonight. I'll read them to you. Genesis 9, 6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. So in other words, well, if you were to kill a man, here's why it's bad. For God made man in his own image. So when we were to hold up the value and the dignity of life, where it comes from is the fact we were made in the image of God. So, so when you think about murder, it's not, it, its attack is not simply just that you killed another person. It is that you're, you're, you're attacking somebody made in the image of God. I mean, it, it's, it's different than killing something else. James chapter 3, verse 9 says this. Um, speaking about uh, the tongue, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people. And when we were to curse people, they're cursing people that are made in the likeness of God. Likeness and image are synonymous with each other. I wouldn't want to distinguish much between the two. So in other words, if you were to speak bad about a person or to tear a person down, and, and not just simply like say bad things, but to tear down the dignity, the personhood of who they are, you are in a sense attacking the image of God that is placed in that person. So if we, if we lay this up, I'm going to get to the, how this applies out. I'm just laying a foundation. So, so if I'm telling the gospel, I'll say we're made in the image of God. Sin has distorted the image of God. And now what I'm going to do is come back over here and I'm going to speak about how Christ is the perfect image of God. Let me give you just one verse. There's several, multiple I could go to. I'll give you Hebrews 1.3. Speaking about Christ, it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. With Jesus, image not distorted. Clear. It says, when you see the Father, see me. I am, he says, I am an exact image. I'm an exact reflection. Whenever you see me, you see exactly God. The exact imprint of who he is. So this is why we say the phrase, Christians are progressively being restored to Christ's image. You want to have, this is why the term Christ-likeness is important. Because you, now in your image restoration, are now becoming like Christ. You are being formed into the image of Christ. We become like him. That's why if you were to carry this, I'm carrying the gospel all the way through, using the image of God to tie it all together. You, you go to 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, and it says, When he appears, we shall be what? Like him. So when we're finally restored, we are like Christ and the image is brought back to restoration. So when, when, when you go to Genesis chapter 1, made in the image of God, and this is, this is how you read the Bible and see Christ in all of Scripture. I just gave you the gospel, but I had Genesis 1 and the arc of the gospel through the Bible. So I can see Christ in Genesis 1 because Christ is that image that was distorted. That's how you would do it uh, from Genesis 1. So my point is there. Arc through the Bible, we're made in the image, 
image distorted, Christ is the image, and image is restored by Christ, and one day we'll be like him, restored. Okay, so there, there's the, the dignity and who we are that's different. So let's talk about some major errors to avoid in this doctrine. Some of them will be more applicable, so I'll move quickly through the less applicable ones. So the first one is reducing the image of God to some human characteristic or the experience of relationship or the activity of exercising dominion. In other words, I listed like a holistic view where there's a lot of different ways in which we image God. This would be just saying imaging God is just one of those. So you don't want to reduce it down to that. Here's another one. Um, you leaving the image God, of God, you leaving the image is only spiritual in nature. So we'll talk about this more as I move forward. But in essence, what it would say is that, that um, the loss of the image is only on your spiritual part of your nature and not on the physical part of your nature. So, or like, it might say a physical is evil and the spiritual is good. Or we start to divide those things. No, no, no. When the image was lost, both your physical being and your spiritual being were all distorted. And his image is found in your physical and your spiritual part of your being. It is, it is marking both. So it's not like the image of God is only found in the spiritual part of who you are. You, your whole being, all of who you are, physically and spiritually, is all found in the image of God. All right, so let's deal with the one I, I wanted. This is where I've been driving the whole time. So let's get to C. Maintaining the evolution can fully account for the existence of human beings who do not hold a special position over other creatures from which they have evolved. So if we were to take image of God in the Bible off the table, and then now we were to say evolution, the fact that we're just here by Big Bang or whatever you want to pull out there, and there's not some sort of distinctive statement that makes us different than other creatures, we now become equal. In a sense, our value is the same as any other value of anything else in all of creation. You see this beginning as people, and again, as people lose the biblical worldview of the image of God, people begin to lose the priority of the dignity of man. Because we will hold a value on a person's life above any other life around it. So here's the example I want to come up with. Um, May of 2016. This is probably the most distinct one. You probably know this story. Uh, you, you probably saw on the news there was a, there was a silverback gorilla. Harambe was the name, I believe. And made like a, if you follow on social media, I think you end up becoming a meme after the whole thing and this big kind of massive deal. But what had happened, you saw it on the news probably, this little boy, three or four-year-old boy, I think it was, fell into the into the habitat where this 450-pound, I think 17-year-old gorilla was at. And so there were two females in there. The, the people at the zoo were actually able to get the two females out. But this 450-pound gorilla walks over to this little three- or four-year-old boy. And it's, they have it on video. Most of y'all probably seen it. At first, it actually looks like the gorilla is protecting the little boy. It, the video shows almost like there's some sort of protection, but then the 
the, the gorilla actually starts to drag the little boy around. Kind of through, I think there's a little canal there and kind of takes this little boy around. Well, the zoo, the zoo officials are left with a decision. The, this gorilla is so powerful, they say that this 450-pound gorilla could rip a grown man apart in just seconds. So this little boy uh, is definitely in clear danger. So one thought is say you should tranquilize it, but tranquilizers could take up to 30 minutes to work on this gorilla. So left with one choice. Uh, they had to kill the gorilla. And uh, to press it even further, this particular uh, type of gorilla is endangered. It's an endangered species. Uh, so there's not many of them in the world. Uh, so killing one was a pretty significant thing to do. But the zoo officials uh, did it, made the decision, they had to make it within seconds. I mean, you didn't have very long with this little boy's life uh, to be had. Now, just to carry this out, I'll start at the very base minimum, I'll say here. We do value the life of that gorilla. We care. We don't want, it's an endangered species. We don't want to see them killed. However, one of those two in that particular habitat was an image bearer of God and carried the dignity and everything with it. One of those did not. And so that for us as a Christian, it's not hard to figure out. We're going to protect the image bearer of God whatever way we need to. And so when we see that moment, we think, clearly, uh, that would not be the case. But, but in fact, this, this turned, and in our culture, uh, it became like a just, there's a hashtag that went out, justice for Harambe. Um, and uh, there was, I think there was a petition that was signed that basically defending the fact he shouldn't have been shot. 138,000 signatures, I saw in one article today, signs you shouldn't have shot this endangered animal. And there was one quote from the Washington Post. So this is a Washington Post article. Somebody was speaking in the article, and this is a statement. Shooting an endangered animal is worse than murder. Okay, so we feel the shock of that statement, because it's a terrible statement. My point in the whole story, you know, we don't, don't want to see the, I, I don't want to celebrate in any way the killing of this animal. We don't, we don't desire that at all. But when you lose the dignity of man as an image bearer, you get so confused on what decision you should make there. And all of a sudden you say, well, this, uh, this grill is endangered, so somehow that no overrides the life of this little three or, three or four-year-old boy. Well, that, that's not right. And so the confusion comes when this, so, so you say, is this a big deal? Well, this is what, as a Christian, inside of you at the core level makes you go, yeah, that, when we shot that gorilla, that was the right thing to do because of the image bearer and the dignity given to that life. This carries and impacts all kinds of things that we make decisions about in our culture, from uh, abortion to murder to even euthanasia. All of those things are not right because we are image bearers of God. There's a difference you would euthanize your dog and not yourself. They're not an image bearer. That's a difference between the two. And so uh, carrying that out, I would just say, in our culture right now, holding to an image of God personhood, that's who we are, 
will make you distinctly different than how people are. And, you know, I can come up, you, you watch the news, that was probably the most popular of those stories, but that's, there are multiple stories on that same level where it's up against animal versus. And you see these, like, animal rights. And, again, I'm not, I'm not for the abuse of animals, and a lot of that's probably done some good to protect animals. I, I, I probably, probably right, but it gets out of balance. People get, people get so focused on it. So, anyway, I'm not political movement there. I just want to say man's life is more valuable than any other life. That, that's the distinction. D, uh, believing that while he generally uh, em, employed the mechanism of ev evolution to develop the world, God intervened to form the first human being in his image. So the error here, we call this like theistic evolution. So the error would be, and I won't spend too long on this, but just to say God kind of created man and then after that evolution kind of took over. Uh, that tears at the fact that God has been a part of all of the creation order. So, again, won't spend too long there. So let's talk about enacting the doctrine. Enacting the doctrine. Treating all people with respect and denouncing all forms of racism, sexism, classism, and ageism. This is, uh, we could spend a while on what I just read there. And I think spend a good while. These four forms of discrimination are all attacks on the image of God and people. So when we, at core level, when we speak about any one of these, racism, well, we believe every single person above their race is an image bearer of God, and so we have respect and value for all people. So that's why, that's why any form of racism needs to be thrown out because it's actually an attack on this belief about who we are. You, you could do the same thing of sexism. So I would even say um, male or female. We would say everybody is equal in value before God. We would never hold that a male is any more value before, valuable before God than a female would be. And so for us even... Uh, there, because of the image of God, each is equal in value. Same thing from classes to even uh, ages. This, is, this could go, uh, probably one of the biggest ways in which our culture is shifting in this world is um, with, with the idea of euthanasia and those who have become old to the point where they, they, uh, health care has become really expensive. And the, the sense is, we all, once you reach to a certain point, you don't want to live anymore, just euthanasia is fine. Well, that's not what we believe. We believe that every life, no matter what age, is equal in value. It doesn't matter whether they're going to live another six months or whether they're six months old or six months before they're born. Every single one of those lives is equal in value. So there's your kind of basic idea there is that the image of God has us respect and denounce all forms of those things. Respect those groups. Reflecting God as his image bearers in the world which we live. So again, when you obey the Lord and honor him with your life, you become a positive image bearer of who God is. So when you love others, you are reflecting the glory of God in how you love somebody else. That's why it's such a big deal when you don't love. Because you are now failing to reflect the image of God and the glory of God in you. All right, so let's do the second part. This speaks to who human beings are. 
Okay. So these, I'm going to dive into some conversations that you may, maybe y'all have entered in these before, but you may not have. So the next couple minutes, hang with me uh, because I'll be curious when I'm done. You may tell me this was boring and not that interesting. So I'll, I'll couch it that way. All right, so let's, let's begin with this summary. The nature of human beings consists of a material aspect, that means the body, and an immaterial aspect, that's the spiritual part, the soul and the spirit, united into one person. Okay, just to jump to the end, this is going to affect gender identity. This doctrine will be why we would reject the fact that you if you feel one gender, you can shift your physical. You know, some people say, like, statement will be is like, I, I, I think I'm another gender, so then I shift my physical gender to represent, like, anyway, so they're both set. So we'll get there in a minute. Major affirmations. The complexity of human nature is both material and immaterial. I'll give you the key verse for this. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It, there's nothing really... This isn't like a, it's more of an assumed doctrine, but you can hear it in the verbiage of 2 Corinthians 5. So, so, so follow it with me here. Basically what you're looking for is there's a physical body and a spiritual body, and they are distinctly two, a spiritual part of us and a physical part, they are distinctly two separate things. It's not like we're all one thing, there are two parts of who we are. Notice what it says. For we know that if the tent is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent, that being your body, we groan, longing to be put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that the, what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So he prepared us for this very thing as God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So here's a couple key phrases. There's a lot there that's kind of assuming it, but I'll draw the key phrases. Verse 6. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of, a, of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home from the Lord. Did you hear that? You can be away from your body and at home with the Lord. That's when the spiritual separates from the physical. So there's a body. Now, they'll come back together, but in this moment, they'll be separate. So whether we are not at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. So the complexity of human nature is different from the simplicity of divine nature and angelic nature. So here's what I mean. God is spiritual. He's not material. So talk about God, he's spiritual, he's omnipresent everywhere, but I don't, can't grab God, right? He's not a material. Angels, they're spiritual, they're, they're not a material, but the difference between angels and God is angels are, in one place, God is omnipresent. This is what's distinct about us. We are both material and spiritual beings. God is spiritual, angels are spiritual, we are material and spiritual at the same time. One of the positions that people hold 
is sometimes people will distinguish whether we have two parts or three parts. Some call this dichotomy, which would be we would have two. Trichotomy, like a tricycle, we would have three. So there's three parts. So let me explain the differences. Everybody believes there's a physical part. Some people like to split the spiritual part into two. They would say there's a soul, which is the intellect, emotions, and the will, and a spirit, which is the capacity to relate to God. So there'd be three parts, body, soul, spirit. Sometimes you'll see that written. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 20, verse 23. Hebrews 4.12 talks about the word of God divides soul and spirit, joints and marrow. So some people will take those verses and say those are, they're actually distinct two separate things. However, Jesus in Matthew 10.28 will say he will kill the body and the soul. Jesus will only speak about the body as two parts. Um, in some ways, I don't know if I really have a position that you have to hold there. I would, if it were me, I would prefer just two. I think to try to parse soul and spirit and say there are three parts of us is, gets a little bit, I think you start to define what's soul and what's spirit, I think it can be a bit of a challenge. I think you just think we're spiritual and we're material. That's, that's how I would encourage you to maybe think about it. But if you want to hold that there's three parts to and that those scriptures hold to that, I think that's fine. But that's what makes up who we are as people. But this word monism on here, the one thing I would say is we're definitely not one part. We're at least physical and spiritual. At least that. The Bible teaches that clearly. So let's talk about how we as humans exist. It says the different stages of human nature. Earthly, we are both material and immaterial, meaning like I'm a body and a spirit. After death is when I get disembodied. In other words, my body's here, and then I'm absent from my body and present with the Lord at that point. The material element is sloughed off. So at that point, uh, my body's still here, but I am present with the Lord. Then after the resurrection, you could say we are then reunited with the material body, and we are resurrected at that point. So we have our bodies for all the rest of eternity. So at that point, both in the new heaven, new earth, for all eternity, you will actually still be embodied. It's not like after you die, you'll be spiritual forever. You will actually come back and reunite with your body in the resurrection. So you, you have it. Um, and then that's where I take that verse earlier, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. And then when the resurrection happens, the bodies rise from the dead, about rising from the earth, and then all of a sudden you're back reunited uh, with a glorified body. Okay. I apologize. I hope you're staying with me. I hope you find this fascinating. So... Sometimes I regret what I put in here. So let me explain this. Maybe you find it fascinating. This will make your head hurt for a minute. Maybe you never thought about it. Let's talk about the origin of the soul for a minute. There's two terms on here. Creationism and traducianism. And what we're talking about here, and if you ever think about this... <laughs> But I never, never thought, okay, when a person, at conception, when a person comes together, what 
where is God's act and where is man's act in the forming of a human being? So in other words, uh, we say, the Bible says, I formed you and I knit you in your know, innermost parts. So there's, a, there's acts where the Lord is involved in your, you know, creation. But then there's definitely a part in which mom and dad play a role in creation. So there's two, two theories here. I'll give them to you and um, make your brain hurt a little bit. And then we'll, and this even carries further. My brain hurts more as I think about how sin gets passed along. I'll let John, you can ask John all the questions about that. So creationism. Let me give you the first one here. What, what, what this means is that God creates the soul and then unites it with the body that is generated from procreation with the parents. So the parents, through procreation, do the physical part. Then God comes in, makes your soul your spiritual part, and then puts them together. That's how you're made. That's a creationism theory. Like, so, so then how do you get your spiritual part? How do you get your physical part? God, would do this. God does the spiritual. Man does the physical makes some sense, right? All right, here's the second theory. Uh, Traducianism is both the soul and the body are generated through the procreation of the parents. So the Lord supernaturally works through the parents that the soul and the body are generated that way. So it's the Lord doing it through the parents in that moment. So this is where it really gets complicated, you say, is that how does sin get passed down? We know that original sin moves along. Is it done from parent to children, or is it that all of mankind is sinful? Anyway. Sorry, I'll just say this. That the more you unpack theology, oftentimes you leave with more questions than you do answers. So I feel like I'm doing that for you right now. Which is generally, I mean, that's honestly, when I took theology in seminary, I found out I had more questions when I was done. Just because you understand, there's a lot of questions. You know, I don't know exactly how I'd answer that. Um, so I, I would probably lean towards uh, the fact, the second, that both the body and the soul are generated from the parents, and then from that point, God supernaturally works through that. I don't know if I would want to separate the soul creation out. Um, but again, the origin of the soul. On with a couple things, and then we'll wrap it up. This is where uh, major errors to avoid is elevating the immaterial aspect of human nature above the material aspect. So this is thinking like um, all spiritual is good, and your like your body, the flesh is in a sense like bad. You would. I think everything that is physical about me is bad and everything spiritual about me good. That's not the case. It, it's all corrupted by sin. And the second one really, without reading it all, it's basically denying um, the existence of an immaterial element. And I, I'd be curious to know who even tries this, the fact that there's not some sort of spiritual element to mankind. I think about everybody would accept that. But then the third one is the one that I think can be helpful for our culture. The, the final error is yielding confusion over gender, gender identity, leading, leading to surgical re, reconstruction as the opposite sex. In other words, 
now you begin to say that the spiritual, whatever that feels, whatever that thinks, then dictates what happens in the physical. Uh, but in fact, it's both are distinct parts of who you are. In other words, what they're trying to say is your gender identity is only found in the spiritual. There is not a physical element of your gender identity, is what the culture says. That's why it's distinct to remember now, we believe you are both physically in the image of God and spiritually in the image of God, and both of those are part of who you are. And that's why we go all the way back to Genesis 1, in the image of God, both male and female, he created them. And so we draw that all the way down to say, just because you think different does not drive the change in your imaging physically. So, I mean, that's a major, I just said something that culture hates right there. And it's completely rejected now. Now, I will say under all of this, there are some significant issues with certain people that make this a little bit complicated, and we need to be sensitive to that. But we don't, we don't ever want to make the few exceptions the things that define our whole big belief. So if there's just a few exceptions or a few things that might be a little confusing to you, you don't take that and then let that drive the whole thing. You, you don't let that create that kind of confusion. So embracing the doctrine is embracing embodiment as the divinely designed state of human beings. And then the second one is embracing our genderedness as both male and female. So, so that's part of who we are in the image of God, made as male and female. Now the guys in the back are waving at me. I'm waving at myself right now. So, thank you for hanging with me through that. I know some of that dove down, and I didn't want to go too deep on it. Some of it may be more than you're interested in. At core level, just remember, the image of God defines who we are, and therefore defines how we stand on so many things in the culture, defines how we value life, and that's why we stand on so many of the things we do. So let me pray for us. We'll go from here. Heavenly Father, may we all be encouraged here that um, even though sin has distorted who we are, that, God, we still bear your image. We have value. We have dignity. That, God, when you look down at us, we are valuable people. And that, God, even though sin has distorted us, Lord, we are thankful for your love and your care for us. God, that we still stand here with dignity knowing uh, who we are based on who you are because we bear your likeness and your image. God, I pray in this room for those of us uh, for all of us who struggle to rightly bring glory to you in our lives because of sin, Lord, we pray that right now as we go from here that you would help us to better bear your image, to better represent you. And so that as we love others, people might see the love of Christ. As Lord, as we serve others, they might see how Christ would serve. As we are faithful to others and we are caring for others, we are kind, we are good, all of those things, Lord. We ask by the power of your spirit, we might go here as better image bearers, honoring you with our lives. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.